Hello and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Cathy Love. I started life as an OT, had a, an amazing, crazy private practice which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard allied health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of joys, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy. Hello, everybody. Today on the podcast, we've got Natalie Jack, who is going to do a very awesome job of introducing herself and explaining a bit about what uh, she does. And I was just saying before we hit record, I'm really, really keen to just hear about the evol- your professional evolution and why you now do the supervisory work that you do. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to yeah talk about it all as well. Oh, I think we're just going to wrap it on for ages. It's going to be good. So tell us about tell us about where it all started. Like, just wind back the clock a little bit, not right back to primary school, but okay, yeah, no. somewhere, somewhere <laughs> soon. All right. Well, I'm originally trained as a music therapist, so I'm a musician to start with, and then my graduate training was in music therapy, and that was 23 years ago now. So I've been a music therapist. I'm still a music therapist um, mm. for 23 years. And uh, even as a graduate student, I realized that supervision was important. And, you know, back then I didn't know quite what it would mean for me, but I knew it was something really important. So I've always had supervision on my radar, I guess. And then as I've gone through my career, I've worked in different clinical areas, um, rehab, kids, people with disabilities, and really did a focus on mental health. So my clinical area of, of interest was mental health and particularly forensics. So I worked in a a maximum secure forensic facility for quite some time, both here and in Canada. Um, And I ended up doing my master's in mental health science. And so I'm a mental health clinician as well. And I guess through that time, supervision always, yeah, just continued to be an important thing. And I did lots of training in supervision and just could see how much supervision was needed and important for allied health across the board, not just for music and other arts-based therapies, and um, and now here I am today running my own business. I do individual music therapy with a couple of clients still, but my main focus is supervision. So I supervise allied health professionals in individuals and in group settings, and I teach supervision now as well. Mm. That's the kind of progression, yeah. Can you remember the sort of supervision that you received when you were a graduate? Yes, I can remember it just like it was yesterday. Um, See, I can't, so just fill the space. Okay. I'm falling back to even think about what it looked like and felt like. I got nothing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I always had very, very supportive supervisors as a graduate student. Um, however, I felt that there, there should be more of a structure to it, a bit of a plan for the supervision, and that even the supervisors needed support as well and training in supervision, which is, you know, as allied health professionals still now, we don't always get training before we have to supervise maybe other students. Um, and and some of the boundaries weren't exactly fitting, I guess, for me either. I didn't fit, didn't think about that some of those boundaries between supervisor and supervisee were quite right. And it took me a long time to figure out what that was all about. And, um, yeah, so now I strive to kind of make it right for whoever I work with. Yeah. 
what I can remember about the first year or two of my work was I think that the supervision I got was pretty constant. Yeah. Like I worked in a small team. We were all in the one office. I was at a special developmental school mm. and there was always someone to ask. And there was, I had a phenomenal, phenomenal launch into my profession, but it, it was very constant and very caring. And it was a, it was lots of check-ins. I felt as though I had lots of elders I could go to, but That's I don't true. formally remember really remember going into a small room with a with a notebook. Yes, and that's really what we we look at, I guess, nowadays is this gold standard of supervision where you have ideally someone external to your organisation that you can be completely honest with. You can say, you know, this patient really annoyed me or I did this really silly thing without the fear of being perhaps judged by colleagues or, or bosses, you know, people who are your boss. And so the, the profession of supervision is really developing into its own profession and something that you do in a more formalised, very, very supportive, very structured, not very structured, I guess, but a, a more formalised relationship, just like therapy is itself. Yeah, I think uh, my experience was a lot of co-working and I would, I, as an OT, I would be co-working with the speech pathologist or the psychologist or the educator in the room and it was this constant adjustment and is that working or not or are we on the right track here or I better go and read a bit about that or whatever it, it was. Um, but I remember having appraisals and things like that, but it was it perhaps wasn't as formal um, and perhaps my expectations weren't as as high as perhaps graduates and early, well, you need clinical supervision at, at right throughout your career, but perhaps, yeah, my expectations were just, yeah, just kind of. Yeah, and people have different understandings and expectations of what supervision is, you know, and supervision isn't any of that workplace stuff. It's not appraisals. It's not performance reviews. It's not organizational stuff like paperwork and and timing and scheduling and all those types of things it's actually about really about supporting the clinician what do you need yeah what do you need from me you know are you having a hard time with this what are you do you stressed are you burned out what do you need from your workplace and and of course clinicians bringing their case studies as well bringing their actual work to work through and to see how that's going so it's rather a separate thing to all those more workplace type of things like appraisals and check-ins yeah Let's just dwell on the new graduates um, for another moment because it is the season right now as yeah, we're absolutely. recording. Uh, what what do you kind of believe graduates need as they're coming out of university, they've had their last placements and then they're into a workplace? What, what do you think is kind of gold standard there? Well, look, I think I think people ask me this all the time, how many supervision sessions should I have? And my, my response is about 10 a year, about 10 hours of supervision, so kind of monthly, having December and January off. A lot of professions have different standards, and I know that OTs in Australia, I think they even have weekly or fortnightly supervision as graduates, whether it looks like supervision that I'm talking about or not, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but I think fortnightly, fortnightly for graduates for the first six months would be really good really good because they can ask all the questions they can check in with all the things they can they can say how scary or they can say how overwhelmed they are without any kind of issues you know so I think fortnightly for the first six months would really be ideal and then monthly after that for all of us you know yeah. I still attend monthly supervision with my supervisor 
Yeah, yeah. I think I tend to hear a fair bit about weekly supervision for new graduates. Mm. And that's good. There's a time and place for, for that. But I guess before we progress, it'd be really good. I'd love to hear your definition of what you believe supervision is. Well, supervision is it's a safe space for um anyone really, not doesn't have to just be allied health. Um, any professionals to have time to discuss their their needs, their strengths and their goals in their career and to check in that they are looking after themselves and that they're giving the best possible service to whoever they're working with. So it's that that safe space, that relational um, type of work and the learning together work that is done in that supervisory relationship. I have wondered over the while about whether that's the right word for it because supervision is sort of, it's, it's kind awesome. of out of the industrial revolution, isn't it, really, Absolutely. where somebody's standing there looking over your shoulder and sure that you're doing it correctly to the standards yeah. required. Exactly. And in all my courses, I always start with that. You know, it's the wrong word. It's the wrong word. And, you know, nowadays we, we're we in that, that's what the word we use. We use supervision and most allied health professionals know that that's what it means. But so many people might still have that that idea that it's someone looking over you and making sure that you're doing everything right, but it's not about that at all, not about that at all. But what yeah. would you like to call it? Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't it be great if we called it supported reflective practice or and because reflective practice is the centre of what we do in supervision, you know, supported reflective practice would be wonderful. Um, in fact, that's my, that's my preferred term to use. But you know, yeah, I quite like the word clinical coaching. But I've sort of got that coaching DNA there because it shouldn't, it shouldn't, it it should be very empowering and you should be energized to reflect and self-solve and contribute yes. and all the rest of it. I think it should be a very active yes. um, process rather than being told what to do, which Absolutely. I think is that older uh, supervisory model. So I, I kind of like the word coaching. Yeah, coaching is a similar thing. Sometimes people also ask me about mentoring, where it's, but mentoring is more of that, here, do this, go ahead and do this thing, and, and it's a different kind of style of working and it's a different relationship. Mm. And mentoring is often not a paid relationship like supervision mostly is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and coaching, you've got the same idea in coaching the way you describe it. It's about it's about the, the supervisee coming up with their own solutions, about helping them to reflect, about helping them to think about solutions for problems so they can then go and do things on their own and that they have shifts in their thinking during the session. You know, they have that, oh, that aha moment or that light bulb moment during the session so they can then go and make changes and do better things. During the, well, we better call it supervision or we'll just confuse everybody, yeah. but we'll quietly, yeah, crusade yeah. that. We'll, I'm with you on that. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So in the supervision conversation, I kind of get the sense that there's um, there's a fair bit of ego at play sometimes in there um, and sometimes consciously or not, the supervisor can just create dependency on them right. as the solver of all things. Natalie takes big breath for those <laughs> listening. And that's that's a really, I think, a troublesome <laughs> troublesome dynamic to be kind of getting into. Um, you're resonating with that. Yeah, look, and I think that's a training issue because I think a lot of us, and I know it happens in OT as well, you know, you get to your second, third, fourth year of practice and someone says, hey, can you take a student? Can you be the supervisor? And the, and the OT go or the music therapist or whoever it is goes, uh, okay, but they don't get any training. So they don't understand mm-hmm. that it's not a supervisor-led 
process. It's a supervisee-led process. And it is tricky not to get into that, uh, that habit as a, as a more experienced professional to just solve people's problems and say, here, just go do that. It yeah. really takes a lot of mindfulness and understanding to say, okay, well, what would you do? Tell me about that. Explore options. And so we don't want supervisors with big egos. We want supervisors who are going on a learning journey with their supervisees. And as I said, I think training comes a lot into that when you can teach about how to structure, what to use, what kind of tools to use for supervision. So, yeah, it it can be a problem. I think as a supervisor, you're doing really well if you're learning more than your supervisee. I learn something every single session with my supervisees. I really do. Yep. Yeah. I also remember um, when I was a clinician that I was um, kind of getting stuck for where to go for this sort of input. And um, whilst I could fly anywhere in the world, pretty much whenever I wanted to do the big courses and have conversations at that kind of clinical um, consumption level, I found it really difficult. Um, And in the last, probably the last 10 years of my clinical um, adventure, I actually stepped out of discipline and I got supervision with pediatricians and psychologists and psychiatrists and speeches and all the rest of it to really round out what I thought were my gaps. I don't know if they were my gaps or not. But I, I think there's a bit of a an assumption uh, that you've got to be supervised by an older, more experienced OT than yourself. And I really want to challenge that. I don't know. I might have put myself on a branch here, Natalie. Are you with me or not? Oh, I'm totally with you. I'm totally <laughs> with you. That's something that is is a big issue in the supervision community. There's a, I guess there's two ideas around that. And the first one you've expressed is that sometimes um, even organisations can, can mandate that you must have supervision from your own profession. Um, but there's another camp, and I'm firmly in that camp, and we usually multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary supervision is a thing, you know, I'm I'm originally a music therapist, but I supervise psychologists, I supervise teachers, I supervise speeches, OTs, anybody, because when you know how to supervise, when you've done specific training, especially when the clinician, the supervisee is older, more, more experienced in their profession, it doesn't need to happen that way. My supervisor at the moment is a social worker. Um, at the beginning, it's good to have someone who knows all the ins and outs of the profession. I don't supervise many people who are not music therapists in their first year out because they do need that more educative type of supervision where they can answer questions about the technicalities of that particular profession. But having someone that's an experienced supervisor, I think, is more valuable sometimes than having someone who's of your same profession. So, yeah, I'm completely with you on that. I guess it's differently valuable, isn't it? Because you still need that clinical training and content, yes. that technical piece, but it's a quite a different um, discrete skill set to be able to facilitate and, and yeah, yeah, and coach absolutely. and supervise. Mm, yeah. yeah, definitely is. And, yeah, we just get thrown into it. I was thrown into it with no training in my second year out, I think. Yeah, we need someone to supervise a student. Will you do it? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. I don't know That'd how. Yeah, that'll be great. And we, it still happens now because we need supervisors. So, yeah, and I went on, a, on that journey, you know, of learning and figuring out how best to be a supervisor for all the different people that come to me. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on, um, and I get asked this a bit from time to time, on a supervision agreement, like the paperwork commitment handshake before you even start? Yeah, this is something that I, again, teach in my courses 
Um, some people and my mentor, Michael Carroll, is a UK supervisor. He says, do not do supervision without an agreement. And that is that's a firm rule. And he's got lots of firm rules. But I think in our allied health community in Australia, we need a bit more wiggle room. Sometimes the agreement needs to be a bit more informal. Sometimes organisations require a certain agreement and paperwork to be done. And I'm working for an organisation at the moment, supervising their um, staff, and they have quite stringent requirements for contracting and paperwork each session and those types of things. So I think there needs to be a level of contracting, whether it's a verbal or whether it's an email or whether it's a you know really formalised contract. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in our in our kind of culture in allied health, it needs to be a bit flexible. Yeah. Yeah, I think something needs to be in place so that the rules are understood. Absolutely. The rules are understood. Sometimes there's um, a little bit of uncertainty about whether the clinician's manager has visibility of what happens in clinical supervision as well. Right, yes, and I have thoughts about that as well. And, you know, sometimes it's required of me to provide a report every six months or 12 months to a manager, to the organisation who employs the supervisees. And I make it very clear that I'm happy to do that, but I won't be disclosing any Mm. detail because that relationship between myself and the supervisee needs to be trustworthy, needs to be honest. And if I think there's something the manager needs to know, I'll talk to the supervisor and say, look, I think you should talk to your manager about that. Yeah. So those things really, you're right, they do have to be set when you're working in an organisation like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, everyone's going to have an opinion on this and, you know, different organisations are going to have a different line in the sand around around it as well. But I guess it's one of those things that needs to be understood from the get-go to ensure the safety of the, the space. Yeah, yeah. Supervisee well-being is the the crux of of what we do in supervision. So anything that threatens that needs to be managed. Yeah. And you mentioned quickly there about paperwork per session. Mm. What could that even look like? Well, it can be simply just a paragraph or a few dot points of a record of what happened in the session. I always keep quite detailed notes of each supervision session. Um, so that I have things to look back on and we can have a look at uh, over time uh, with the supervisee. Some organisations, like the one I mentioned, uh, they require the supervisee to fill in a form, a predetermined, quite a simple form, just about what they talked about. And I've encouraged the supervisees to be quite general in that because, again, that's that's the things that we talked about between us. It's not necessarily a detail that the manager or the organisation needs to know. So it's a record of supervision that I recommend everybody keep. Um, whether it's more formal like that or informal depends on the situation. Yeah, yeah. And how uh, prepared do you expect the supervisee to be in showing up? Yeah, quite prepared, quite prepared. Yeah, what I ask is that they set an agenda and because, as I said earlier, it's not my my job to say what we're going to talk about. It's their, it's their time and they need to use it the way they see fit. And so I do ask them that they prepare an agenda ahead of time. And I say, look, even if you've got time, send it to me via email. Send me a page of reflections or send me a few dot points so I can have an idea and a bit of a heads up about what we're going to talk about so I can maybe, you know, even find a few resources if there's questions that I think could use some resources and I can just have a heads up so we can, yeah, hit the ground running. And not everyone has the time or ability to do that, but some do. And I find it really great because they've reflected, they've done that reflection before they come and they're ready to really dig into the issues. So, yeah, I ask them to be quite prepared. 
And it certainly speaks to the supervisee being a very active, assertive participant who's somewhat driving the the process yeah. and not just stepping in, um, expecting to be told what to do and just passively, yeah, consuming. Yeah. Do you find you have to reset people's expectations a bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because people, as we were saying earlier, it, they don't have an idea of, what supervision is in the way that I do it and that other supervisors do it because they've had different experiences perhaps mm-hmm. of more managerial supervision or operational supervision, you know, doing things like your appraisals or whatever. And so they come and see me for supervision and they say, oh, I've never, wow, I've never had supervision like this before. So we do do quite often a bit of um, resetting of expectations and I'm very clear up front about how it works and and what the expectations are. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of light bulbs that start going off quite early mm. on in the relationship. What role does accountability have with in this process on both sides? Like, both sides. yeah, it's yeah, kind of relevant, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Well, at the end of the day, the clinician, the supervisee, obviously has responsibility for their clinical work and for their own well-being. However, as a supervisor, I have responsibility to to notice any red flags, to notice if the supervisee is not doing well, you know, check in on their mental health, check in to see if they happy if they happen to tell me that they're doing something that's inappropriate or dangerous or unethical in their work. And there is an onus on me to then do something about that. Uh, so there is accountability on both sides in the relationship for sure. Yeah. Because otherwise, I guess the conversation and the learnings just sit in a bubble you know, Tuesday, three o'clock and yeah. the yeah, the value is going to happen in between the sessions, just like therapy, I guess. That's right. That's right. And through the relationship and and, and having those aha moments during the, the supervision then provides the momentum for the change to occur in between sessions. And that's what I always try to strive for in the, the sessions and in, within the relationship. Mm-hmm. Running a business isn't just about setting up shop and becoming complacent. It's about showing up for ourselves and our clients with a commitment to continuous improvement. We have to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and where we're going. That means identifying strengths and weaknesses so we can improve. After all, if we're remaining stagnant, how can we scale and build the business and life of our dreams? That's where the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz comes in. We're not talking horoscopes and pulse hope here. This questionnaire is the perfect starting point for you to begin identifying your strengths, needs, and blind spots as an allied health business owner. The process is simple. Answer the 14 questions and we'll send you a personalized report that includes actionable steps for you to start taking your business to the next level. Ready to take your business into your own hands? Take the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz today. You um, alluded to wellness and and mental health, and I know this is um, a huge focus of um, what you you do. Mm. Let's change gears a little and talk a little bit about um, mental health first aid. Um, Oh, yes. Yes, let's go there. Let's go there. Maybe give us a bit of an introduction about what it what it is. It's something that we all know about and we hear about it, but do we actually really know what it what it is? Yeah, okay. So mental health first aid is it's a wonderful program. Um, it's a two-day program to become an accredited mental health first aider, the language is, and it's just like physical first aid, but for mental health. So when you go along and you do your 
day or two days of physical first aid training, you learn to respond to physical injuries, physical um, health crises. And when you go to mental health first aid training, you learn to deal with and manage um, mental health crises until the person you're helping can get to professional help. So it's in, in every way very similar. It's actually was developed and modelled on the physical first aid program. Was it really? Did yes. not know that. Yes, the lady that the lady that uh, that developed mental health first aid was a physical first aid trainer, and through some discussions with her colleagues, had said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could have some kind of mental health first aid? Ha ha! Wouldn't that be good? And then someone said, actually, you're onto something. And now it's become this international evidence based mm-hmm. program that is run. It's run all over the world, and. And I really, I honestly think that every adult should do it. It's not just about workplace. It's about friends. It's about family. It's about someone that you might be able to help at the supermarket. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I believe in it very strongly. Tell us a little bit more about the training. I know you can't launch into all of the content, but if you went for the two days, what sort of things would you discover? Okay. Well, what I think the main thing you would discover if you went to the two day training is that you can do something to help. Yeah. A lot of people don't have firsthand experience with mental health crises and it's a bit of a, it's a scary thing to help someone who's in that space. But the main thing you you learn is that it's okay and you can help people. And so we have discussions about a format and there's a really nice structure that mental health first aid have put in place so that you know what to do. You can start a conversation. It doesn't have to be a big performance. It can be just a question, just a small thing, but you can make a difference. And so we discuss different mental health conditions, we discuss ways to help, we discuss language, we discuss expectations, we we discuss all of those things, but the main message is you can help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and to have that confidence and have a couple of tools in your toolkit to be able to step towards a situation rather than away. That's exactly right. Yes, I love that, towards yeah. a situation rather than away. Perfect. Yeah. So are you a now accredited trainer? Yes, I am. Yes, I'm a... I've just changed the language, so I'm a licensed mental health first aid instructor now. Okay. Yes. All right. Good. It's all been a bit more officialized now. And have you been running this program, this training now with a few groups? I haven't yet. I only completed my own training as an instructor in November, so I'm chasing my first booking now. I've got all my gear ready. I'm ready to go. So, yeah. I um. Obviously, through our clients and our online community, I um, love seeing the photos of the whole team doing the mental health first aid training and everyone's on chairs and listening and looking and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the community of people who are prepared to step towards is growing and growing, like literally week by week. I think quite a few businesses that we know have worked on this over the summer. Right. It's such, oh, look, as I said, it's such a fantastic program. I did it myself in first for the first time in 2018. And even after having a master's in mental health science, I took so much away from this training and I said, this has to be done more and I want to be able to do the training one day. So, yeah, it just, it's such a, such a great program. I can't speak highly enough of it. Yeah. So let's draw a couple of overlapping circles here. And how does the mental health first aid overlap or not with the supervision work that you do? It absolutely does. It absolutely does because it allows me to recognise mental health crises or looming mental health crises. It gives me, as you said, those tools to have conversations, the confidence to say, hey, I've noticed this. How are you feeling? Um, Would you like some resources? Those type of things. So I think 
mental health first aid training and any kind of relational thing that we're doing, therapy, supervision, any type of relationship, it just dovetails so nicely in because you can have the skills to start the conversation. So I, I use the skills every day. Yeah. I could uh, imagine that your mental health antenna are just up all the time and wriggling <laughs> around. Um, what have been your observations about wellness and mental health across the allied health community that you've come in touch with? That's a great question, and I'm so glad I get to answer it. Thank you. Look, allied health professionals are an extremely hardworking, caring, empathic bunch of people, and it's wonderful, and it's expected for those of us who are in caring roles to be that way. It's a superpower to be so caring, and it's a superpower to have empathy, but it can be hard on us. And so a lot, especially over the last few years of the pandemic and ongoingly, a lot of allied health professionals are experiencing burnout, they're experiencing empathy fatigue, they're, they have a lot of imposter syndrome, they want to do well, but they're doubting themselves. So as a group, in my experience, that's what the mental health of allied health looks like. There's, there's stress, there's overwhelm, there's burnout, there's so much caring for other people and wondering if they're doing a good job. That's the that's the main things I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just overarching fatigue. Oh, completely. Fatigue, fatigue, fatigue. Yeah, yeah. And we talk a lot about that in supervision. Mm. It's affecting our work and anything goes. Whatever's affecting your work, you bring it in supervision. So we do a lot of talking about how we can manage those things. I'd love to know how you uh, facilitate people shifting, shifting up their commitment to their personal wellness? There's a lot of talk in the media that has been for the last maybe five or ten years about self-care. You know, this oh, that's a foxy one. It is a foxy one. I think you and I will agree on this. It's And a colleague of mine, actually, a music therapy and mental health colleague of mine, says it's it's a trap. You know, it's a setup. It's this commercial consumer. It's commercialised, yes. Consumer self-care, we call it, and it's, you know, the onus is put back on us. You know, your workplace isn't treating you well. Oh, you're not doing enough self-care. It's that setup that my colleague talks about. And it's it's things that are not necessarily healthy. You know, oh, go and eat the chocolate cake, drink the champagne. You know, you deserve it. You deserve this self-care. So it's a real capitalist, consumeristic version of what you should be doing to look after yourself. Whereas in my opinion and in, in other opinions of, of some wonderful writers online, Real self-care is actually making a life, and this is Brianna Wist's um, quote, making a life that you don't need to escape from. Mm, that you live every day with sustainability. Yeah, yeah, that you just don't lurch from one weekend or one holiday to the next, that you take some time with your workplace's help and support, hopefully, to, to create a schedule that works for you, to mm. get the work. That, I mean, obviously, supervision is something that's really good for self-care and, and preventing burnout, but I'm biased about that. You know, creating a life of work and a personal life that you don't need to do all that consumer self-care. So those are the discussions I have with, with my supervisors, along with the discussion about empathy versus compassion and, and the new kind of... <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> you want to go there? Okay. All right. No, just back to the self-care bit. I yes. do concur that it's been hyper-commercialised yes. and that the expression of self-care is expensive days at day spas and trips overseas and retail therapy. I don't know. I just yes. think it's really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. 
but in fact, when you can learn to to breathe <laughs> and to to build in breaks across your day and across your week, and you yeah. know, back to basics. Um, it's about self compassion. It's about looking after yourself, building those things into your everyday, prioritizing yourself, and advocating for yourself in your work. That's that, in my opinion, is self care. Yeah, mm. I would love to see. Uh, some conversation or some reframing around what I call, with respect, December drama. Okay. All right. Tell me about that. So it it (laughs) is just this uh, thing of, well, it's, oh, my God, it's December. Oh, my goodness. And it's just so busy and, you know, this time of year and so on and so forth. And it all worked up. I'm just just really curious and questioning about how much of the, the whirlwind we create ourselves for whatever reason. Like, does it have to be that nuts? I don't know if it does. Well, I don't, you know, I think people feel like they don't have a lot of control over it from work expectations to family expectations to societal expectations, cultural expectations. People feel like they don't have a lot of control to to, to manage the drama or to manage the um, commitments in December and January. But I think if we look at it through that self-care kind of lens, we can say, actually, I'm going to advocate for myself and I'm going to say no to some things. A yeah. huge amount of self-care is starting to say no. So I think you're right. We can manage those things, but we need to know that we can't, we're allowed to, yep. first of all, because there's yep. so many expectations from outside and from ourselves. Yeah, and to maybe understand um, some different ways we can learn to tap into and manage and restore our personal energy. Yes, yes. And a lot of people think it's doing more. Oh, you've got to go to yoga. You've got to add more things to your list. You've got to go on a retreat, like you said, go to yoga, go to hypnotherapy, go to do your mindfulness. But it, it just ends up more stuff on your to-do list that like you, you don't get done and so you're failing at that as well so you yes yeah, so you feel overwhelmed even more but the key the first step to self-care is the don't do list doing less saying no and I have a strategy that I teach about the three d's delete delay and delegate you know get that list and just stop doing as many things as you can that's the first step to, to bring down that overwhelm and then you can start looking at other things to add in so uh, my list is similar it's no next or never <laughs> Oh, I like that. No next or never. Yes. Very yeah. good. Yeah. If something's been on your list for three months. It's not important. Yeah, it's 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 never. It's yeah. just check that one out. Yeah. Um so empathy and compassion, do you think they get used a little interchangeably? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And most of, of your listeners probably will know about the term compassion fatigue. And that's traditionally been the term that we use for, you know, doing your job over long periods of time and becoming fatigued from giving too much and hearing too many sad stories and being grieved and all of those types of things. Whereas over the last 10 years, there's been some research, fantastic uh, functional MRI research on actually what the differences are between empathy and, and, and compassion. And we're only just getting that through now in Australia because the original research was done in another, another language other than English. So isn't that interesting? So what, what they realised through these MRI studies is that empathy is our state of, of feeling other people's emotions. So feeling others' grief, feeling others' stress, feeling others' um, happiness even. That is where the burnout occurs. So the terminology that we now can use is empathy fatigue or empathy burnout, empathy stress. And the compassion piece is actually the action that we can take to help someone. So the compassion is actually the antidote 
to that fatigue. So through these brain imaging studies, they've shown that it's great to have empathy. And I always, I'm glad these studies have come out because it's kind of justified the way I always have thought about it and that empathy is a superpower, but you have to be be careful about how it affects you and use that superpower really well, which means moving from empathy and not being caught in cycles of other people's emotions, moving to compassion, which is that, how can I actually help? And the act of compassion, the act of helping helps us move on from that empathy fatigue. And so, like you said, those words have kind of been used interchangeably, but what we knew about it, that maybe compassion was the problem, it's actually the opposite. Compassion is the solution. It's the action of empathy. So we don't get caught in a cycle of helpless, hopeless emotions and feelings of others. We can move through and do our jobs and help people. So that's something that people really seem to resonate with as well. Well, I'd be really interested to read some of that, send through... um... Yeah, feel free to send. I will. I'll send you some. Yeah, some resources. Could be interesting. Could be interesting. Um, you also mentioned burnout as well, and um, we did some work with our members uh, around this. We we have this background agenda the whole time with our members about yeah. personal energy and tools for that. Yeah. Uh, and did some work. I, I did a whole ton of reading on burnout probably early last year, so probably twelve months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was intrigued about what I didn't didn't find. No one can really agree on this thing. It's actually not a. It's a. It's listed as an occupational syndrome. I don't even think it's registered in the DSM. Whatever we're up to as well. Yeah, and nice. I thought, goodness me, surely, surely someone has had some time during the pandemic to kind of yeah get into to this one. It was so vague and so broad and. I was really quite surprised, really mm-hmm. quite surprised. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, um, I've i done a lot of reading into it as well and it's the symptoms and when I teach about it, I, you know, I say to people, you know, what are the symptoms of burnout? And we talk about the symptoms of burnout and I say, let's just change gears and tell me what are the symptoms of depression? Mm-hmm. And they start listing the things and then I see everybody's light bulbs go off because it's almost an identical list. We could put up anxiety, generalised anxiety disorder, um, snap. Same kind of thing, right? Mm. And so the general, I guess, the understood difference is that that burnout comes from a more work-related, occupation-related activity or ongoing issues with, whereas depression is usually seen as more of a personal thing, but they're sometimes very hard to distinguish between the two. Mm. I was reading uh, around that burnout piece and that it, can actually be non-occupation related. Mm, well, yes. There you go. Yep, that's right. And advocacy fatigue is a thing. Advocacy yes. fatigue yes. is a similar, it's a kind of burnout and a lot of disability communities have advocacy fatigue, minority communities from forever having to advocate for their own community. And music therapists get it a lot, being the kind of you know new kid on the block, 45 years now in Australia, but being the new kid on the block, we are constantly advocating and having to prove ourselves in the community um, with all the other more established allied health communities. And so a lot of my colleagues in the music therapy and other kind of minority or newer professions really identify with that advocacy fatigue for just not being able to go do their jobs but having to explain and explain. And I know OTs still go through this and they did, especially way back in the beginning when OT began to be more of an accepted profession. So, yeah, burnout doesn't have to just be your work. It can be fatigue from all kinds of things. Yeah. I also wonder whether it should be a verb. (laughs) (laughs) 
burning because it's it's not as though it seems to happen overnight. It, it might accelerate towards the end and somewhat appear to happen overnight, but there's there's track, you know, oh. there's, there's form on, on it. There's absolutely you start to read and understand the um the um composite nature of the yes. symptoms, if you like. Yeah, it's it's an accumulation. And in my own burnout experience, I of course with hindsight I could look back and and see all the Yeah, no wonder. And it's the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, one little thing yeah. happens and all of a sudden you can't work for however long because you you're at that point. Um, but there's definitely, there's definitely form and there's definitely a history that you can see. And that's, you know, obviously something that we work on in supervision is to know what your particular early warning signs are. What are the things that happen to you when you feel like you're too too overwhelmed and heading towards that way? So you can, you know, put a stop to it as soon as possible. Yeah. So back to kind of join up a few dots, you've got um, the the supervision, supervisory work that you do, and that, that's cross-discipline, the mental health first aid work that you're looking to step into. Who are the organisations that you love to partner with and work with? Oh, well, anyone in allied health. Absolutely anyone. I work with private clinics who offer multidisciplinary um, services under the NDIS. I work with professional organisations like the Australian Music Therapy Association. I've worked with Hong Kong Music Therapy Association, so those kind of peak bodies in Australia. I love working with um, consulting-type folks. I work a lot with um, Allied Health Support Services, which is run by an OT up in Queensland, and Allied Health Support Services also have a sister organisation, which is the Allied Health Awards. So really um, anything to do with allied health in Australia is uh, people that I love to work with because I know that they will have the best interest of allied health staff at heart. So they're my people. And in general terms, what are the, oh, the cliches, transformations, but what are the outcomes you see from the process of working with you? Yeah, well, some people, it's interesting, some people quit their jobs because they're really, yeah, I know it's a big it's a big one. Some people quit their jobs because they've stuck at something for so long and felt like they couldn't or shouldn't quit. And they've got to the point where they're burnt out. And I say to them, well, what would happen if you quit? And they go, oh, it's like a realization that they can actually make a change. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the clarity is just, you know, it's amazing and it's breathtaking. And it's not something I go out to to do on purpose to make people quit their jobs, but it's such a freeing thing sometimes for just someone to say, well, you could quit. That could be one of the options. You really know. change it up. Absolutely. And that's the most dramatic, I guess. But other other times I see people looking after themselves and that's what mm. makes me just so happy. They actually put boundaries in place for themselves. They, they stop looking at their phone after hours. They put their laptop away. I had someone tell me the other day they had two weeks off over the holidays and they locked their laptop in their cabinet and they didn't look at it for the whole two weeks. And I thought that is so great. Yeah. Oh, great. So people looking after themselves, that's that's really what people can hope to see in supervision if they're getting high quality supervision to enjoy their life more, to enjoy their work more, to remember why they wanted to be an allied health professional in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to throw you the talking stick. You can have the last say. What would you like listeners to think about? I would love your listeners to think about how they look after themselves in their work. You know, we caring professionals just often look out at everybody else and they look after everybody else and find it hard to turn that mirror around and look at themselves. And so what are the things you're putting in place? Not the yoga, not the, 
the chocolate cake and the, and the holidays. What are you doing every day to look after yourself and who do you need to go to perhaps to, to help you with that and, and have a routine set up to really look after yourself so you can enjoy your life and your work? Thank you so much, Natalie, for coming in. I really enjoyed this conversation. I suspect we have a few more ahead of us. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to, yeah, to perhaps uh, have more conversations about these topics. I think they're really important. And so, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on naker.com.au. And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.